listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Well, recently, uh, my oldest has become scared of night shadows. And uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a fun new adventure at my house. And so uh, not too long ago, she starts whimpering in the middle of the night, and I go in there to comfort her. And I say, what's wrong, baby? I, I lay down with her, and, and she starts pointing, pointing to every possible thing that has a shadow. Now, mind you, she also keeps the lamp on right next to her bed. So it amplifies the shadows. I tried to tell her that. There's no rationalizing, right? She just sees the shadows and she's scared. And so she starts pointing, oh, dad, what about that shadow? And I say, it's okay, baby. It's not gonna do anything. It's gonna stay just, just right there. It's because of the light reflecting. It's causing the shadow. It's okay. She said, but, but what, what, what about that shadow? It's okay, baby. I know. It's going to be okay. And about the third time she does this, she realizes that my acknowledgement of the scary dark shadows that have come upon her room in the nighttime, they're not going away. I've acknowledged them, but they're not going away. But it seems to her, it seems to me, that as I acknowledge those things, my Shh, I know it's going to be okay is enough to bring her comfort and for her to head back to sleep. I, I don't know what it's like for you to come into a gathering like this this morning. There's your current emotional state and that varies from person to person. And for some of you, that varies moment by moment, Right? Yes, some people are scared to say amen. And, and then there's the presuppositions that you bring into a text like this. And maybe your presuppositions are simple. You say, I'm, I'm open, Pastor Chris. I really don't have that much knowledge of the scriptures, let alone in times in particular. I'm ready. I, I, it could be um, that you don't really care for me to talk about the end times at all because if you're honest with me, you would just say, that all sounds a little too extremist. Or perhaps you're like me and you've had this left behind Tim LaHaye bent since the late 90s drilled into your core being. And so this suppressed kind of terror overwhelms you as you cover a topic like this. Whatever the case, as we find ourselves in the middle, smack dab in the middle of a three chapter long vision, prophetic vision received by Daniel, it's important for us to know that Daniel's concern, his reason for concern is not removed automatically by receiving this prophetic vision. Horrible things were indeed coming. Don't miss that. 
Horrible things were indeed coming. There was no doubt about this. And we'll see even more of that as we conclude chapter 11 this morning. But the sovereign Lord who is in control of all things, who has the power, he's omnipotent to handle anything and all of its steps. He steps in with this vision to say, I know. And that helps, doesn't it? That helps. Daniel's vision doesn't first begin when, with, when you hear of wars and rumors of war, but rather, if we go back to chapter 10, it begins with, oh, Daniel, man, what? Greatly loved. May this be the day, church, where we hear about prophecy in the Bible and when we think of prophecy in the Bible and we aren't scared away thinking that that is just an extremist position or when we hear about prophecy in the Bible, we aren't thinking that core memory that's drilled down deep into us about how scared we are about the left behind books. But may, when we hear about prophecy in the Bible, may this be the day that we don't think of it as just another negative thing in this really difficult world. Not another, all the banks are failing kind of conversation. Not another, Stuart Little, the sky is falling. But rather, that prophecy, hear this, is a strong word of love for the people of God. For the people of God. Oh, children, greatly loved. Daniel chapter 11, verses 21 through 45. Here, the vision focuses in on first, verses 21 through 35. And as, as we begin, you, you can probably just follow along if you have a Bible. I'm going to try my best to just go verse by verse. So um, just, yeah, let's go along, okay? There's a lot of information in there. As I, as I prepared to study this week, I, I realized, I, I called Michael and I said, man, I haven't preached at all in the book of Daniel. And you gave me this? Really? <laughs> So here I am, um, verse 21, and in case you're jumping in with us for the first time or you just happen not to be here with us last week, that is okay, okay? The, the first half of the book of Daniel is really just biographical in nature. It tells us about Daniel's journey of faith in Babylon. Then the second half of Daniel, where we are right now, is more prophetic in nature, with, with genres, with the different genres in uh, the Bible, this is called by scholars apocalyptic literature. It's in time, in nature. And chapter 11 may be the most specific prophecy in all of the Bible, describing future events we have. That's chapter 11, and I have the privilege of explaining it to you this morning. And as I mentioned already, this one vision covers chapters 10 through 12, but it also covers an incredible span of time from the time of Daniel around 535 BC to the final victory of the Messiah at some point in the future that is to come for us. 
So chapter 11, the first 20 verses, which we looked at last week, cover over 300 years. 20 verses, 300 years from 535 BC when Daniel first received his vision to the death of Seleucus IV Philopater in 174 BC. Now you don't have to take notes unless you like to. But just so you know, the first 20 verses covers how many years? 300, okay. The next 14 verses cover only a span of a little over 10 years under the direction of someone whom verse 21 calls a contemptible person. Now, history tells us that Daniel's vision, his prophetic vision was spot on, spot on. And this contemptible person actually has a name. And his name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And we've seen him before. He's the enraged horn from the goat who set himself up against the people of God in Daniel chapter eight, if you were with us then. And if it gives you any indication as to his character, you may remember this, but Antiochus IV self-appointed himself. Not only did he give himself the kingdom, but he also gave himself the name Epiphanes, meaning God manifest. That's what he thought of himself. But his reputation, however, earned him the nickname Epimenes, a little pun on Epiphanes, meaning madman. This is the guy that we're dealing with right here. Now, if any of you have, have looked at history in any way, you know that there are a lot of bad kings, right? There's a lot of evil kings during the span of human history. Evil kings, evil dictators, evil leaders in all of history. But this contemptible person gets all of this spotlight here in the scriptures because of his particular treatment of the people of God. The particular heinous treatment that we'll see of the people of God. Now look there at verse 21 with me. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not yet been given or who has not been given. Again, Antiochus IV took the throne for himself since his brother's son was detained in Rome at the time. Like verse 21 says, he came in without warning and obtained the kingdom by what? Flatteries. Not only is he a really evil man, but he knows exactly how to use his words. He's a wordsmith. But not only flattery, but in verse 22, we see force. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. Now, we won't get into all of the historical and political details here, but the area south of Syria had been promised as a dowry. And when Antiochus refuses to acknowledge that that deal had been made by his father, his predecessors before his reign, Egypt kicks it into high gear and, he, and they say, man, we're, we're coming after Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So he prepares for battle and he takes them out. You're coming after me, you're gonna get wiped out. That's Antiochus the fourth. That's his motto. Don't come after me. Don't mess with me. On to verses 23 and 24. Now, there is alliance here, an alliance here in the text with a, with a man named Ptolemy Philometer. Of course, 
Yeah, it's like, man, these are great names, right? That's what makes this all the better. Of course, Antiochus has deceptive, deceptive motives because of who he is, the kind of man, the kind of character that he has, and he seizes a lot, a large portion of what was Egyptian territory with just a small portion of people. We see that at the end of verse 23. Antiochus is able to do a lot, a lot of damage with a small amount of people there at the, at the end of verse 23. And he's able to do something that his fathers nor his father's fathers were ever able to do, verse 24. And in verse 25, he's going to stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So much so that Antiochus goes after the Egyptians four times. And although Ptolemy Philometer has a large army due to his own poor advisors, who, verse 26 tells us, eat of his choice food, he suffers loss, and he's finally captured. That's Ptolemy Philometer. Verse 27, as for the two kings, Philometer and Antiochus, their hearts are bent on doing evil together. When two evil dictators, tyrants, kings get together, they don't do good, right? This isn't going to end well. In fact, they're each so deceptive that when they come together to the table, they are lying to one another. And yet the text says, they shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. Verse 28, then Antiochus returns to his land with what? Great wealth, but his heart shall be against the holy covenant. So he brings back a ton of wealth from the Egyptians, and as he heads home, he takes action against who? Israel, the Jewish people, God's people, and he is enraged at this point. Because earlier, he had removed the Jewish high priest, Jason, and he had set his own high priest in his place with, by a man named Menelaus, who had paid Antiochus, an ancient text tells us, a great sum of money to take the position of high priest. Now, for some reason, the Jews received word that Antiochus had died. Antiochus however, had not died. And so they, the Jews, they overthrow Antiochus's high priest, Menelaus, and they restore Jason to the position. So as Antiochus, again, as he is heading on home with all his Egyptian glory, all his loot, everything, he stops in on Israel and he slaughters 80,000 Jewish people, and he sells another 40,000 into slavery. And Antiochus doesn't stop there. In fact, he trashes the temple. He takes all of the temple's gold and silver, and he sacrifices a pig on the altar. And then he heads home to Syria. Verses 29 through 31 describe another attack on the south. Here he goes again, but it doesn't end like the last, the scripture tells us. Verse 30, ships of Kittim will show up against him. And he's not exactly used to this. He's used to 
getting people on board with great flattery. But history tells us that Egypt had formed an alliance this time with Rome. And so Rome sends one of their own officials, Papilius, to meet with Antiochus. And he says, hey, you've got to get out of here. You need to leave Egypt. You're not coming here. Antiochus says, well, um, I need you to give me a a moment. I'm going to go back. I'm going to talk with my officials, and I'm going to let you know what we're going to do. Papilius says, actually, no. He draws, history tells us, he draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus, and he says, before you leave this circle, you're going to let me know now if you're coming to Egypt or not. Now, it's unlike Antiochus to do this, but he actually pulls back. He says, we're not coming to Egypt this time, but just like any bully, Antiochus gets mad and he has to do something with all of that rage. And so where does he go back? Israel. He heads back to Israel. Verse 31, he sends folks to Israel to profane the temple and the fortress. They take away the regular burnt offering and instead they sacrifice pigs to their own Greek gods. And they set up the abomination that makes desolate, the text tells us, where a pagan altar was built on top of the altar of God and the temple is then rededicated to the Greek god Zeus. In verses 32 through 35, Antiochus's flattery actually continues to work for some. Many Jews were scared for their own lives. They're thinking, man, am I going to continue to endure this amount of persecution? If so, I need to get on Antiochus' side. Regardless, this man seems to know what he's saying. He seems to be in charge of things. Verse 33, the people who know their God, and this should stick out to us, shall stand firm and take action. There are Jewish people that at that time, they walk away with Antiochus Epiphanes and they say, that man is the right way to go. They're influenced by his flattery and yet we see this beautiful verse. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Despite the great difficulties facing the Jewish people, many did keep their eyes fixed on their covenant-keeping God. Now, there's a particular family that history tells us about that stayed true to their God. And we heard about this several chapters ago, but there was a man named Mattathias Maccabeus, and he had, anybody remember how many sons? I already had my hand up. Five Mattathias Maccabeus had five sons and Mattathias was one of the men who knew God, decided to stand firm and take action. So he and his sons, they head up to the hills to prepare for a revolt. Mattathias was a priest and he refused to offer sacrifices to the Greek gods. And so they flee to the hills and they begin what history tells us is the Maccabean revolt. And that's what we see here. The revolt begins, they stumble, verse 34. 
Then they receive a, a little bit of help. Some are running to join them. They don't know, again, which side they want to be on. It looks like the Maccabees might be winning, so let's jump to them again. We want to be a place that flatters us. So they join themselves to flattery. And still, verse 35, some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Now, Antiochus, that's the end of his story as far as scripture goes. He leaves us in verse 34, and he no longer has an effect on Israel. We don't have any more info here in the text, but in the third year of the Maccabean revolt, being led at that time by Mattathias' son, whose name was Judah, they were able to force the, Syr the Syrians out of Israel and were free to resume temple worship of the true and living God. Now, the ancient texts, first Maccabees and Josephus, both then record an eight-day festival held to rededicate the temple. And that festival became what we now know as, anybody know? Hanukkah, meaning to dedicate. Before we move on, though, that's a ton of information. You can actually go read about all of that in the history books. That's what makes this so beautiful. This prophecy so neat is that Daniel has this vision of something that is going to happen in the future, which we can now look back on and say that was completely accurate with amazing detail. We get to do that. But considering Mattathias Maccabeus and his five sons, there's a question that the history books don't seem to ask us. And it is this, how many people does God actually need? How many people does God actually need? Because you see, if Jesus continues to tarry in our lifetime, if he doesn't return in the here and now in our lives, the church, it seems, here in the West, here in America, is going to be facing some dangerous times, persecution even, that we might never have experienced before. But hear this, God is not worried about that. He isn't sitting up in the heavenly places, deliberating over the odds. If I have this many people, then we'll be able to accomplish this. If I have this many people, then we'll be able to accomplish this. No, he doesn't deliberate in that way. He isn't interested in how many people, brother and sister. He's interested, hear this, in who you are. In who you are. He's jealous for you. He created you in his image. He formed you in your mother's womb. He's jealous for your heart. Again, back to Daniel chapter 10. Oh, child, greatly loved. Have you given in to the flattery of the false gods in our land? Have you succumbed to their good desires and their good reign? Have you given yourself over to those things? 
Have you given yourself to the cares of this world and neglected to follow Jesus with your whole heart? Then this word is a kindness from God. Turn back today. Come home. Now our, vo- our focus shifts in verse 36 from the contemptible man to another king. Verses 36 through 45, and we'll conclude here. But immediately we see there in the text that this king shall do as he wills. And in that sense, he sounds exactly like Antiochus IV Epiphanes, doesn't he? And rightly so. Theologian, author Sinclair Ferguson writes, the vision of the future here is presented in terms of the experience, knowledge, and events of the present. But Antiochus Epiphanes is being used here as the lens in which to further view our future. And so as we move into the text here, we have who 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 calls the man of sin or the man of lawlessness now in greater view. The one who Revelation chapter 13 calls the beast. And we have the previous verses of Antiochus IV Epiphanes as our template. That's the kind of man, that's the kind of character that we're now looking at. But there's another who begins to come into greater focus. For we see in verse 36, someone described as one who exalted and magnified himself above every God. But we know that Antiochus Epiphanes worshiped who? Zeus. And he did so, according to the history books, until the day of his death. The man in verse 36 has said of himself that he's above every other God. We also see a difference in verse 42 when this king stretches out his hand against the countries, the land of Egypt shall not escape. But we just saw that as Antiochus goes into invade Egypt for the last time, Papilius draws the circle around him in the desert and says, don't come any further. And Antiochus retreats. He doesn't go into battle with Egypt. Also, consider verse 45. When this king, now in view, shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious mountain, which is Jerusalem, and it is there that this king will find his end. What we do know about Antiochus Epiphanes, though, was that he was east of Israel in or around Persia when he died of some stomach issues. He was not in Jerusalem. Antiochus Epiphanes is not the man that we have here in verses 36 through 45. But simply, he's used as a reference point to the embodiment of the spirit that we've been talking about through the entire book of Daniel. That is the spirit of Babylon, the spirit of Antichrist that is coming. So who is this king? That's what we have to answer. Well, the text first tells us his name, Nikolai Carpathia. Just kidding. That's not there, is it? There's nothing about a name, in fact. And I want you to see that. I wanted that to be a bit humorous for those of you who know. For those of you who don't, that's, it's a part of a book, again, that was really popular in the late 90s. Okay? 
And so many of us have that as the lens in which we view these events. And so we're expecting the scripture to capitulate to the ideas that we bring to the text. And the text says, we have no name. We don't have a name, but what we do have is a character. And with character, we can see a lot. And so again, just as Daniel has this vision, and we now know that that first bit was about Antiochus, the fourth epiphanies, we too can look ahead to the future to see that there is this same character coming and, and probably to worse of a degree. This king is a self-willed man, verse 36. He will speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He's a blasphemer. As it says later in verse 36, he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. He'll be successful until God's judgment is complete. Verse 37, he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall pay no attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself above all. He'll have no respect for any religious heritage. That won't bother him at all. And we don't exactly know what it means, the one beloved by women, but perhaps this king, this coming spirit, this coming antichrist, if you will, will not favor normal marital relations thinking he's above even that. He's above every God. He's above all normal marital relations. He's above it all. And he will reward and honor those who join his efforts. We see there in verses 38 and 39. As we move into verse 40, the time of the end, Daniel may be pointing us to one final battle or one complete campaign. What we aren't given is extreme detail, but rather again, the character of this king, this antichrist and the followers that he has in the last days. So this king, the Antichrist, now referred to as the king of the north here in verse 40, will be attacked by the king of the south. But the Antichrist will win, and the wind will allow him to, the text says, sweep through other lands like a flood. Verse 41, he will invade Israel, the glorious land, and many will die. In verses 42 and 43, the Antichrist, this king, will look like he's on the precipice of total victory. That's what it's going to look like at the end of time, but becomes terrified in verse 44. This Antichrist Alarmed even when he receives reports from the east and the north. So what does, again, what does an arrogant political leader who believes himself to be a God greater than all of the gods do when he's scared? Verse 44, he pursues his enemies. He doesn't stop with Great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. Verse 45, he will then set up camp in Israel and there he will come to his end and no one will be there to help him. No one this time is coming to this one's aid. His campaign is over. He's done. Danny Aiken, pastor, theologian says this, this puny human despot meets the king of kings and lord of lords and when he does there is no contest there's no contest that's what we have there's no name but we have a character I'm going to start a story I met my wife in ninth grade 
as I wrote that in my notes, there is not a connection between human despot and my wife, okay? I just want you to know that. She's kind, gentle, I love her to death. Now I'll start my story. I met her in ninth grade. We married some eight years later. Couldn't marry too soon later. We were in ninth grade. Uh, But we now have two beautiful children and I'm blessed with incredible in-laws that are faithful servants of Christ here at this church, here at South Point. But I could not have imagined that in October 2001 when Dory and her mother showed up to Tribulation Trail. Tribulation Trail was a guided trail in Stockbridge, Georgia, just north of us, where it guided individuals, thousands each year, through various scenes that were playing out what the Great Tribulation was going to be like, and it culminated with this final scene, the Great White Throne, and I was an actor in it. In fact, that year, I believe that I was jumping out as a strange animal from the abyss. I jumped out. I was so good at acting that somebody punched me in the face because they were scared. But I figured our time that month each year as thousands would come and walk that trail was to scare every single person that came and walked through each of those scenes scare them enough about the realities in the future so that they would indeed repent of their sins and turn to Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. Hear this. The events of the future, these events in which the Antichrist, 36 through 45 verses, is on his final campaign will absolutely be horrifying and scary. In fact, this is your moment if you're not in Christ to turn from your sins today and trust in forgiveness, in him for forgiveness while it is still today. The Bible's clear about that. But family, I missed something all those years ago. I miss something because for the people of God, not that the future will be easy, we can't make that mistake, or that it will be blissful, it certainly will not be. Nor that difficulties will be removed even. But there is this tremendous promise here baked in to the essence of this vision, this prophetic vision that is given to Daniel from the living God who is sovereign over all time, human history, he created it, that says this. Shh. I know. I told you. That's why I told you. I care. You are greatly loved. So in saying that, I want to conclude with three points of application regarding the care of God for the people of God. And the first is this. God demonstrates his care to his children by warning them. He gives us warning. The warnings help the faithful endure with the understanding that God said this would happen. 
We aren't outside family of his knowledge and care, and that is enough. A month or so ago, I took Piper to the dentist, and as she finished a cleaning, they, they brought her out to me. And they said, Mr. Brown, uh, your daughter has two teeth that are coming in, and those other teeth in front of it aren't budging, and so we need to remove those baby teeth uh, in order to get to the back ones. And she didn't know this, but I was like, what? <laughs> you said you have to do what to my daughter? You know, I'm like, baby, it's, it's going to be okay, you know? I didn't tell her that part. But as she comes out, I look at Piper, and I do Man, I, I see that she's a bit scared and she's a bit afraid as to what they have just told her. And I did not in that moment promise that everything was going to feel just fine and dandy. I didn't do that. That would have been naive on my part. That would have been setting her up for something that was not true or that was not going to happen. But what I did was to say, Piper, in just a little bit, these kind doctors and nurses are going to give you some laughing gas and it's going to make you feel really good. They're going to give that stuff to you and in a few moments later, they're going to start working on your mouth and you might feel a little bit of pressure. In fact, you are going to feel pressure, but just know that it's going to be okay. A simple warning of the things that were to come. Not to say that I'm removing every obstacle in her way, but just to let her know that this is what is to come. We hugged before she went back, knowing that I knew what she was going to experience, and that was enough. The warning was simple. When you experience this, these things that are to come, know this. Don't freak out. Dad knows what is happening. Brother and sister, don't take the enemy's bait. It looks so beautiful, but its end is death. For some of you here this morning, you need more than just a simple warning like I gave to Piper going back in to the dentist's office. You need a warning that is like a wake-up call today. More than a, I know, and therefore it will be enough. You need a, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews chapter two kind of warning. A Hebrews chapter three, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God kind of warning. Hebrews chapter four, verse one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it kind of warning. Wake up. Wake up. You will not yawn your way into the kingdom of heaven. It never has happened. It will never happen. Don't make a mockery of the warnings of God. You being here today is like a big sign that says bridge out ahead kind of warning. Turn back now and if you don't, you will surely head to your own demise. Has your sin been recently exposed? 
If so, it is a warning of God not to continue on it and a signal of his tremendous fatherly care for you, his dear child. Go to him today. Do not delay. The question is also on the table. Does your sin need to be exposed? Is there sin that you've been keeping back from your heavenly father, although he knows it all? Have you been keeping it, hiding it from those in this family, the family of God, as we are gathered, as we've covenanted? Is there sin that you've been keeping from husband, wife? Is there, is there sin that you have been keeping from others in this body? Hear this, confess it today, but do not stop there. Repent and turn from it and turn towards the living God who is merciful towards sinners. The warnings of God have been given as great care, but if they are not heeded, they will become condemnation. Second, God demonstrates care to his children by limiting, by limiting our three-year-old is, is learning about the attributes of God each week at his school's chapel. And when he got into the van recently, one Wednesday afternoon, I asked him what he learned today. And to my great surprise, he said this, beautiful words, probably the most beautiful phrase that I've ever heard him say, God is sovereign. And as his mo mother and I began to tear up, I said, what does that mean, buddy? And he said, I don't know. <laughs> We have these bits of prophecy to see that God has never once been removed, removed from human history. It's his. He's sovereign. And unlike Cyrus, I know, and hopefully you know, what sovereignty happens to mean. It means that he's in control of all things. It means that he doesn't just sit back and let things happen. Not only is he in control of all things, but he's intimate with us. He cares deeply about each and every one of you. Verse 27, two kings will try to deceive each other, but it won't happen for their end will still occur. When? At the time appointed. Verse 29, at the time appointed, Antiochus Epiphanes will try to invade Egypt, the south, but will withdraw in fear before coming back to Israel in a rage. Verse 35, the persecutions under Antiochus will be some, so great that even some of the wise will stumble on the path to being purified until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Verse 36, we see the king prospering despite his blasphemy and arrogance for what is decreed shall be done. Nothing is outside of God's appointment, family. There is nothing beyond the control of God. Evil never has a final word. And as a result, oh, that my son Cyrus that you, my brothers and sisters, that I might revel in the sweet sovereignty of God this morning. That the intellectual concept that is God is in control of all things would translate into life running through my veins and heart and yours as well. And his sovereignty, his care, that he limits kings and rulers and that evil will not finally win. And last, God demonstrates care to his children through salvation. 
This has always been what God is up to. Consider the beginning of chapter 11, which we looked at last week. It's a weird place for the chapter to pick up at. It's right in the middle of a statement from the man in white linen who we found speaking in Daniel's vision. At the end of chapter 10, this white linen man says that no one is willing to contend with him against the forces of evil except Michael, your prince. Then chapter 11, verse 1, a continuation of that statement. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, those aren't Daniel's words about his support of Darius, but rather the Lord's words about his support of Michael, who will ultimately fight for the people of God. We'll find out more about that next week. Michael, the great warrior, will receive strength and authority from the Lord himself. The Lord has always had it as his intention and as his plan to save his people. In fact, this is the entire storyline of the Bible as we know it in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve take the enemy's bait and they fall into sin they are removed from the garden of Eden with a promise that there is one who is coming who's going to crush the serpent's head one day the enemy will be no more and as Jesus the long prophesied savior comes onto the scene he lives a perfect life fulfilling the law of God perfectly and dies a sinner's death on the cross and as he does he takes on the sin of every single person who would ever believe and he becomes sin and he dies but on the third day he's resurrected to life proving that the serpent has been dealt a fatal blow and that he is not a worry not to be a worry to the people of God And although we still feel his effect and the reality of sin still weighs and clings tightly upon us, its penalty has been removed. And one day in the future, Satan will be told time is up and he will be no more. Before all the Daniel chapter 11 prophecies are given, before the people of God in in a moment's time, before their hope has been reduced to nothing as Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes is, is destroying it all, the Lord has said that he will confirm and strengthen that which will defend his people. And Jesus today, family, sits now at the Father's right hand as our advocate proving that this is certainly true. Family, I don't know why Everything that happens to you and I happens. But when it does, I know that there is always hope. Our Savior is the hope that does not die. He is our salvation. And ever so quietly, we have that whisper and promise. I know. I know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us as your children an opportunity to gather under your word, to submit ourselves, our whole selves before your breathed out word that we might learn of you and in learning of you by your spirit, we might come to understand and to live out of your love. God, we thank you for your great care that is so evident in our lives. 
your great care that sometimes shows itself to us in the form of warning. Your great care that sometimes shows itself to us in the form of limiting. That all things are appointed out of your hand. Nothing goes past your boundaries. And Father, that we see your, hair, your care so clearly in salvation, in sending your son, Christ Jesus, to live a perfect life, a life that we could not live because of our sin debt, because of our sin nature. And he died on the cross, a sinner's death, taking upon himself the wrath that was being stored up for us, rightly, absorbing it upon himself and giving us instead his own righteousness. Your care is clearly demonstrated in salvation. God, I pray today that we, the people of God, those children that you have called unto yourself, would not be terrified of the future that is to come. But we would take this prophecy as a strong message of your love toward us, not telling us that you are going to remove every obstacle, but that you know and that you're with us. That is your promise to us. And that is good. We delight in your promises this morning. We thank you for it's in your son Christ Jesus' name. Amen.